Good afternoon. My name is Avni Nahar. <laughs> and I am Victoria Jones. It is our incredible honor to introduce the 2017 Class Day Speaker, Vice President Joe Biden. As Susan Novick mentioned, Dexter Gate, sitting just behind Widener Library and leading into Harvard Square, bears a call to action that has meant a lot to many of the members of the senior class over our four years at the college. Depart to better serve thy country and thy kind. There are few individuals who exemplify this message better than Vice President Biden. In a career that has spanned almost 50 years, the Vice President has served as a public defender, a county councilman, a U.S. Senator, and of course, as our Vice President for two terms. And he isn't stopping now, as he recently launched the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement at the University of Pennsylvania, and worked with his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, to establish the Biden Foundation, which seeks to find a cure for cancer one day. He has been the recipient of innumerable honors and awards, most recently including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, awarded with distinction, a recognition that has only been bestowed on three other individuals. Yet, while an impressive resume is important, a fact all of us who applied for jobs this year know all too well, what made Victoria and I most excited to bring the Vice President to campus was not his career highlights, but instead his outstanding and inspirational character. Throughout our formative years of high school and time at Harvard, we watched you lead the country with dignity, perseverance, and immense diplomacy. You have shown us integrity and compassion. You have remained optimistic through even the most challenging of times, and you have refreshed us with your humor and personality, such as a friendly wink at the State of the Union address or sharing your love for ice cream. You have shown us what it means to be a great public servant and leader, as well as a great father, husband, and friend. Our class is very grateful to hear from a leader today who embodies a spirit of service so genuinely and who has greatly influenced the way we think about the United States, the wider world, and each of our places within it. Please join us in welcoming Vice President Joseph Biden to the stage. Thank you very much. What a lovely and undeserved introduction. Thank you. Really, thank you very much. Well, class marshals, senior class committee, Dean Karana, family members, uh, class of 2017. Rachel, what the hell is this about five grand? You didn't tell me anything about it in five minutes. I, uh, Rachel told me she read when I filed my financial disclosure as vice president. Unfortunately, this is true. 
The headline in the Washington Post was, it's probable no man has ever assumed the office of vice president with fewer assets than Joe Biden. <laughs> well, I, uh, and Declan, I want to make it clear to you, I still have Secret Service and they're armed. <laughs> and President Trump, I didn't say those things about you today. Ah, <laughs> uh, Declan, you got a future, kid. I mean, this is, I hope you stay engaged, old buddy. I really do. I genuinely do. And, uh, and I want you all to know that uh, when that, uh, that comment was picked up of my saying this is a big deal, <clears throat> Thank God my mother was alive. And, um, and I want you to know, and the official press can tell you, I didn't, no one heard that said. One of your colleagues read my lips as I was speaking to. <laughs> Not a joke. So uh, I, just, uh, I just want you all to be aware, Declan, in your career, they can read lips too, okay? <laughs> and. Uh, Governor Cuomo, my good friend, is here, and, uh, and to carry. Uh, today's a good day, Gov. You get a pay raise. Uh, that means that you don't have to pay tuition next year. Uh, to all you parents, celebrate. Okay, right up front, uh, I, I want to show of hands how many of you here are just hoping to create one last Facebook post for the Harvard memes, a page before graduation. I mean, uh, me and the dean in one place. <laughs> it's time to break the internet. <laughs> what I mean? There's hope. I got your glasses. Uh, uh, I didn't bring glasses. I got my fucking <laughs> Now, look, I know a lot of you are counting the minutes until you can ditch your parents and head to the Kong, but, uh, <laughs> but this day's for them, too, you know. It's not just yours, and the scorpion bowl can wait. I, I want you all to know that uh, I want you to take a minute right now, and I mean this sincerely, to thank your parents for putting up for putting up with four years of standing there when someone comes up to you and they're with you and they say, where do you go to school? And you reply, near Boston. <laughs> they paid a hell of a lot of money for you to say Harvard. <laughs> we know you meant Harvard. We cracked the code. Uh, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of. My son from Penn and Yale said that. They don't, there's nothing to be ashamed of that. You can laugh, son of a gun. I mean, it's all right. Look, I'm honored to be uh, be here today as your class speaker. When I got the invitation, my two nieces, Alana Biden, who graduated from here with honors, and my, uh, my uh, mother niece, Casey Owens, who was a great lacrosse player here as well, they thought it was a great idea that I'd come and accept it. My son went to Yale Law School. He didn't think it was such a big deal. But, <laughs> but my son at Penn, he didn't think either Harvard, or Yale, or 
Harvard were such a big deal. But, uh, but when I've told my son, and I mean this sincerely, that the class invited me, uh, the class committee, uh, everybody, including me, thought it was a, uh, a great honor. And I am truly honored. I'm honored to be here. And I bet when you find out uh, that you found out when Zuckerberg was going to be your commencement speaker, you figured out you needed someone who was more in tune with your generation to speak. Um, and so uh, I understand. I, I understand why I was chosen. You know, I know Mark. Mark and I have uh, a lot of things in common. Neither one of us have a Harvard degree. And together, we're worth approximately $62 billion. So what the hell? I mean, I, you know. Oh, man. I'm not even going to talk about Russia. Uh, anyway. Look, class of 17, congratulations. You made it, and uh, you made it through Ec 10. You made it through Gov 20. You made it through CS 50, which uh, or whichever class kept you holed up in the library for days on end. Speaking of which, has anyone aired out Lamont after finals week? Uh, it's a lot of tension here. You made it, uh, you made it through four years of Boston winners just in 2015. And you finally made it through the gnawing suspicion that your letter of acceptance must have been a mistake to realize that you really do you really do belong here. Unfortunately, now for the rest of your life, you're going to have to deal with the fact that every time you make some remotely stupid comment, someone's going to pipe, pipe up and say, great job, Harvard. <laughs> but it's a cross I think you can bear. Class of 17, you're graduating in a world of incredible change where an awful lot of people are anxious and uncertain about their futures. I know you know this feeling as well. Your Harvard tenure has been marked by our people. Even before you arrived on campus, you learned that your, your Visitas weekend uh, was canceled because of the Boston Marathon bombing. I'm sure that caused some anxiety for both you and your parents. But then you saw how this great city responded, how the people of Boston showed that America never gives up, never gives in, never bends, never ever bows, and we own the finish line. That's what Boston showed us all. And then this past election cycle churned up some of the ugly realities that still remain in our country. Civilized discourse and real debate gave way so many times to the coarsest of rhetoric, stoking the darkest emotions. I thought we had passed the days when it was acceptable for politicians at all levels to bestow legitimacy on hate speech or friend, fringe ideologies. But the world is changing so rapidly that there are an awful lot of folks out there, not just here in the United States, but around the world, who are both afraid of the change and susceptible to this kind of negative appeal. Globalization has cost some of them their livelihoods. Digitalization, Moore's Law, artificial, intelli artificial intelligence are generating 
great anxiety in so many sectors of this country and the world. Some communities are literally struggling to get by, and they're worried. They're worried that they won't be able to keep up with this rapidity of the change they're seeing. And so we saw, not for the first time in our history, but we saw how when you play on the fears, appeal to baser instincts rather than our better angels, you can still reap some temporary but powerful political success. We saw the forces of populism here and abroad seek to close our nation's gate against the challenges of a rapidly changing world, to blame our troubles on the other, the outsider, the immigrant, the minority, the transgender, anyone not like me became a scapegoat. Just build a wall. Keep Muslims from coming to our country. They're the reason I'm failing behind. Why I can't compete. Why I lost my job. Why I worry about my safety. And I imagine for many of you, seeing this unfold was incredibly disorienting and disheartening, as it was for so many Americans all across the country. Your reaction is understandable. But I guarantee you, I assure you, this condition is temporary. It's a temporary state of affairs. The American people will not sustain this attitude. <laughs> to state the obvious, no graduating class gets to choose the world into which they enter. History has already been written for you by those of us who came before you. But you're graduating in a moment of change and upheaval, both here and abroad. As one of my, my favorite poets, Yeats, wrote on Easter Sunday, 1916, he wrote the words, all changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. I think that line more applies to the world today than it did Yeats's Ireland 100 years ago. All has changed, changed utterly. But it's up to you, the generation of this graduating class, to determine where such utter change will lead us. You have a chance to actually help bend the arc of history closer to where you want as a nation. You heard that phrase all the time, you can bend the arc. It only occurs. The opportunity only occurs in moments of great change. And you must look at it as an opportunity. And sometimes perspective can be helpful. I remember, like your parents do, sitting where you are. For me, it was June of 1968. As we began our last semester, we thought the war in Vietnam was going to be over in a matter of months. But then, the start of that semester, the Viet Cong launched 
the Tet Offensive in an effort to end the war in one single seismic assault. Two days into that offensive, a bullet fired on the streets of Saigon by a Vietnam police chief went through the skull of a handcuffed Viet Cong soldier as a photograph captured that mayhem. Although it was years ago, you probably all saw that iconic photo. That one bullet not only pierced that soldier's skull, but it pierced America's consciousness as well. It brought home to everyone of my generation that there really was no end in sight. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Lenny Bruce, a comedian at the time, said, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's a freight train. And that's how we felt. Peaceful anti-war demonstrations turned violent all across America. And the violence exploded in Vietnam as well. That year alone, we lost 17,000 of my generation. That year alone died in Vietnam. 1968 was the first year Harvard students instituted this class day tradition. Your invitee was Dr. Martin Luther King, one of my heroes. That's how I got engaged in the civil rights movement in my segregated state, sitting in, protesting. He was assassinated the month before he was scheduled to speak here. A major political leader, an American icon, our moral compass, gunned down on the balcony in Memphis. Cities, including my hometown of Wilmington, Delaware, went up in flames. My city was the only city in the history of the United States of America since Reconstruction to be occupied by the National Guard for nine months with drawn bayonets standing on every corner as I returned home to practice law. Then as I walked across the stage to receive my diploma, my only political hero, Kara's grandfather, Kerry's dad, Bobby Kennedy, was assassinated in a cafeteria. Not a cafeteria, a kitchen. After winning the nomination, in a de facto winning the nomination in California. I remember looking around, I remember all of our classmates talking. We thought, how can this be happening? Name me a five-month period short of war that's been as climactic as that. But you know what? In spite of everything, most of us, I never doubted for one instant that we could change history. And I come from a technically lower-class, middle-class household, educated by two high-school-educated parents. Convinced me there wasn't a damn thing 
I couldn't do and this country couldn't do. That my generation, I was convinced, could rewrite the outcome we were careening toward. We knew that just because they murdered our heroes did not mean the dream did not live still buried deep in our broken hearts. And we got involved. We turned our anger and our disappointment into resolve. And I would respectfully argue over the next 10 years, positive change. Just four years after I walked off the stage like you are, as a kid with no money, knowing no one, I ran for the United States Senate in my state. Richard Nixon won my state by 68 percent of the vote. But I was determined to end the war in Vietnam or play my part. Not long after that, after being elected, I sat in a cabinet room across from a very decent man, Gerald Ford, President Ford. The seat I sat in for eight years as Vice President, this chair that now is in my home. Looking at Dr. Henry Kissinger and Secretary of Defense Jim Schlesinger, with my senior colleagues on the Foreign Relations Committee, the next youngest person was 30 years older than me. For months, the administration had been saying that they had a plan to end the war in Vietnam. You get to ask questions based on seniority. Everybody was very polite with the President, asking generically about what the plan was. It came my turn to ask my question. I looked at President Ford, determined, but trying to be as polite as I could. And I remember saying, Mr. President, I'm sure if the President were in my position, the President would ask the President the following question. Mr. President, you haven't told us any plan. That was the first time on record President Ford turned to Kissinger and said, tell them the plan in Sector 3. My colleagues thought it was inappropriate, my being so bold. But less than a few months later, the last personnel were being lifted off the Saigon Embassy roof, and the war was over. Not long after that, Kerry, I was assigned to your father's office, Senator Robert Kennedy's office. That was 1968. This is 2017. And of one thing I am absolutely certain, absolutely certain, this graduating class, this generation is fully, completely capable of changing the trajectory of this country as well today. You're better equipped to tackle the challenges that lie ahead than my generation was. You're the best educated, most talented, 
most engaged generation this country has ever, ever produced. That is not hyperbole. That is a fact. And you have tools available to you that we didn't possess. There's more power in that iPhone that Dean pulled out than the computers that sent the man to the moon. 3D printers are restoring tissue after traumatic injuries. Scientists here and all across America are working on how to re with 3D printers produce human organs that are capable of transplant. Software translates real-time conversations into multiple languages. Technology is there to fight climate change. We will cure cancer. Before you're sitting here with your children, you will be flying around the world at 22,000 miles an hour subsonically. You'll be able to get in a plane here and be in Hong Kong. In no time, there's nothing beyond our capacity. There's nothing you're incapable of overcoming. If we remember who we are as Americans, and I'm not talking politics, Democrat, Republican, it's who we are, what we've always striven to be. We're a nation grounded on a notion that everyone is entitled to be treated with dignity. Everyone. Cut through it all. That's what it's about, according dignity to everyone. We're a nation that has always thought big, not small. I'm so tired of both political parties talking about incrementalism. America has always thought big and boldly. What has happened to us? And we're a nation. From our founding, we've been a nation of optimists. But in order to fill your destiny, class of 17, it's absolutely essential for you to engage in the world around you. Engage just like you did here on Harvard's campus. And I learned about you lying down in front of Memorial Chapel to insist that Black Lives Matter or seeing Harvard University dining service workers through their strike, standing with them in a fight for better health care or joining the hundreds of thousands who came together to take part in a women's march or the science march or the climate march. You've got to, you must maintain that determination and commitment to making things better once you leave this campus. Because as I said, you're the most engaged, tolerant, tolerant generation in our history. But none of that will matter if you don't get engaged in the public affairs of this nation. Harvard's own Institute of Politics, my sister taught, recently put out a study that said, even though your generation is more aware of the tangible impact politics can have, politics can have on your life, fewer of you are interested in getting involved in public service. Only 9% of your generation, that's all. And if you break it down by gender, it's even worse, only 7% of women say they're thinking about a life in the public sector. And just this week, the Crimson reported that 37 percent of your class who had been considering a job in the federal government changed your minds in the wake of last year's election. Forgive me, but I think 
That's the wrong reaction. You have an obligation to get engaged. You have the capacity to make things change. It's within your wheelhouse to do it. And folks, please, for God's sake, because I, by the way, I know how, you know, the, the image of people who see Harvard from a distance around the country think of you all as wealthy children of Psycon families. A lot of you work like hell to get here. A lot of you are here only because the school made up the difference between the tuition and what you can afford. A lot of you are here because you work like you work so hard to get here. You deserve to be here. So don't fool yourself into thinking now that you have this prestigious degree, and it is a prestigious degree, it will open doors for you that could not be opened otherwise. I watched my son, Bo, who graduated from Penn. He decided out of loyalty to go to Syracuse Law School because his father did. He could have gone other places. He did well. He ended up becoming the attorney, one of the youngest attorney generals in the state's history. He was a decorated war hero. He won the Bronze Star. As a civilian, he volunteered to go to Kosovo for a year in the middle of the war to set up their criminal justice system as a major. He was in a battle theater for a year in Iraq. Bright kid who I just lost, but a great kid. He graduated with great grades. His brother, a year behind him, graduated from Yale Law School. Not a kid in my, his class got a job offered less than 150 grand, more than federal judges were making. Not a joke. Well, my capable son graduated from Syracuse. That class had trouble getting jobs. You've earned, like my son Hunter at Yale earned, you've earned the right. But don't kid yourself. It will open doors for you that can't be opened by the vast majority of seniors graduating. But with that comes an obligation. And don't fool yourself into thinking that disengaging from the system that you think is broken will hold you harmless from the system's, the system's failures. You can't cut yourself off from the consequences of a failed political system, Goldman Sachs or not. You can't erect a bubble around you and your family. What happens in your country and your community is going to affect you. If our nation is permanently riddled with this much income inequality, if we're unable to create good-paying middle-class jobs in the age of artificial intelligence and automation, You'll not be able to thrive economically. If your sister is the victim of domestic violence, you are violated. If your brother can't marry the man he loves, you are lessened. If your best friend has to worry about being racially profiled, you live in a circumstance not worthy of this country. And of the global rules that underwrite our security, If the liberal state breaks down, we'll all be less safe and less free. 
The air we breathe is not clean, the water not pure. There is nowhere, no matter how well successful you are, for you to hide. There's no wall high enough. There's no gated community that can insulate you from your own failure to engage. Whichever path, whichever path you take away from these ivied halls, however you choose to engage or get involved, one thing is certain. Each of you is going to have to navigate the traps and te temptations that lie ahead as you enter the real world. A little bit like what you talked about, Dean. There's an incredible amount of pressure in your generation to succeed. You might notice that you start slipping into a bubble that validates certain choices, that prioritizes the social trappings of success rather than really making a difference. Take this job. Live in this place. Hang out with people just like you. Take no real risks and have no real impact. Don't just accept what others view as the right choice for you. Instead, choose what you feel is the right choice, based on what's important to you. My dad used to have an expression, he said, Joey, it's, it's a lucky person who wakes up in the morning, puts both feet on the floor, knows what they're about to do, and thinks it still matters. I'll bet if you look around this convocation, there's a lot of very successful people here. If they told you the truth, they wonder whether what they do still matters. There's no silver bullet, no reductive list for you to follow as you go into, into the world. A good life filled with purpose results from accumulation of a thousand little things. I've met hundreds of successful people in the course of my career. I've met every major world leader in the last 42 years because of the nature of my job. And I've made some basic observations about those who manage to find success and happiness, those who find purpose and fulfillment. I mean this sincerely. First, those who find success and happiness understand that a good life is about being personal. It's about being engaged. It's about being there for a friend or a colleague when they're injured in an accident. It's about little things like remembering to congratulate them on a marriage or the birth of a child or graduation. It's about being available as they're going through some serious personal loss or failure. It's about being personal. Resist the temptation to let network be a verb that saps the personal away, that blinds you to the person right in front of you, their hopes, their fears, their burdens. Resist the temptation to ascribe motive to someone's actions because you really don't know their motive, and it only gets in the way of ever reaching a consensus or making progress. Build real relations, even with people with whom you vehemently disagree. You'll not only be happier, I guarantee you, you'll be more successful. The second thing is, remember that although no one is better than you, 
Everyone's your equal and deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. I've worked with eight presidents, hundreds of senators, met most leaders, as I said, had scores of talented people from every great institution in this country and abroad work for me. And here's what I observed. Regardless of their academic or social backgrounds, those who had the most success and were most respected and therefore got the most done were the ones who never confused academic credentials or social sophistication with gravitas or judgment. You and your parents know some really brilliant people who are really stupid. No, I'm serious. I'm being deadly earnest. And don't forget the things that don't come with the, this degree. What doesn't come with this degree is the heart to distinguish between what's meaningful and what's fleeting, and the head to know the difference between knowledge and judgment. Remember the neighborhood you came from. Remember those who didn't have the same chance you had or the same ability you had their instincts, their dignity. Remember, they are still capable of doing extraordinary things as well, if given half a chance. And finally, never forget that reality has a way of intruding. Tomorrow, you'll receive this incredibly prestigious degree. And as I said, you earned it. You deserve it and all that goes with it. And I have no doubt that each of you is going to be very, very successful. And personal ambition is important. It's an incredible motivator. No one has ever accused me of being unambitious. But ambition without perspective is a killer when reality intrudes. And it will intrude. As I said, I got elected when I was 29 years old, the second youngest man in the history of the United States America ever to be popularly elected. I was on top of the world. I was hiring my staff in Washington, D.C. on December 18th. And I got a call from a young person from the fire department they put on the phone. She didn't know what to say. She just said, Mr. Biden, your wife and daughter are dead. And your two sons may not live. A tractor trailer broadsided them. Come home. Reality intrudes. And because I had an incredibly good fortune of an extended family, grounded in love and loyalty and a sense of obligation they imparted to me, I not only got help by focusing on my sons, they were my redemption. I began commuting every single day, and I did it for 37 years, 259 miles a day from Washington to Wilmington, Wilmington to Washington. No, no, it's not about me. Thank you. You're being very generous, but not about me. I needed to be. I needed them. Because I learned what all your parents know. A child can hold an important thought for his mother or father 12, maybe 24 hours. But if you miss it, 
It's gone. It's gone. And so that's why I went home every night and lay in bed with him and got up in the morning with him. No Ozzy and Harry at breakfast or anything like that. It was just a chance to talk. You're going to face your own crisis. Your parents have faced worse crises. Many of you have already faced worse crises. The truth is, you all go through something difficult. You'll wrestle with the kinds of choices every day. And as you do, it helps a great deal if you resist the temptation to rationalize. I know it's her birthday, but it really doesn't matter that much to her. And this business opportunity is so important. It will mean so much to all of us if I just, if I just leave and make that appointment. I know this may be his last game, but in order to make it, I'll have to take the red eye back, and then I got to get in the morning and fly the next day back again. He'll understand. Or I know we've been planning this vacation, the family, for a long time. But there'll be other times because there's just too much of an opportunity for me here. It matters. It matters. It's possible to be both happy and successful. And it's possible to find balance between ambition and your family. But you have to resist the temptation to rationalize. I'm so very optimistic about your generation. I know you're going to rise to meet, rise to meet these challenges with the same irrepressible, irreducible American spirit that's long defined this country and people have walked off this campus. We're still grappling with the deep-rooted cankers of injustice and inequity that have always challenged our quest for more perfect union. And we're also facing new challenges that are going to require your generation to break new ground, climate change, cyber rules, norms, threat of pandemic diseases. Each generation is asked to earn anew the mantle of leadership of our nation, to define our place in the world. Class of 17, you're stepping into the generation where it's now your turn. And make no mistake about it, the United States is so much better positioned than any country in the world to lead the world. I want the class, if they think of nothing that I've said but this, Ladies and gentlemen, I am so sick and tired of this attitude as woe is me. We have such enormous problems. Ladies and gentlemen, we're better positioned than any nation in the world. I've not met a single world leader who wouldn't trade places and problems with us in a heartbeat. I've spent more time with President Xi than any world leader has. 25 hours of private dinners with him. They not only don't have energy, they don't have enough water. Water. 30% of their arable land is polluted with cadmium. They got to find 9,500,000 urban jobs a year. I want them to succeed. 
But the idea China is going to eat our lunch? Give me a break. In the late 90s, I debated the Heritage Foundation at the Wharton School when Japan was going to own America. Come on, for God's sake. No, 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 no. They're good countries. We want them to succeed. But I want you to understand what you're about to inherit. It's incredible what we can do. We have the most productive workers in the world, objectively, three times as productive as they are in Asia. We have the most agile venture capitalist system in the world. We have the greatest research universities in the world. There's more great research universities in the United States of America than the entire rest of the world combined because of Dwight Eisenhower. We're the epicenter of energy production and will remain so through this century. What are we looking down for? So it's time. It's time for America to get up. It's time for us once again to regain our sense of unity and purpose and remember who in God's name we are. With all the brain power and energy sitting in front of me, I know, I know that nothing and no one, no one can keep us from meeting our goals. It's time for your generation, your entire generation, to remember the admonition of my philosophy professor. I remember leaving. His name was Dr. Ingersoll. And as if I was supposed to know, he said, remember what Plato said, Joe. I'm thinking, what in the hell is that about? <laughs> and Plato said, the penalty good people pay for not being involved in politics is being governed by people worse than themselves. Let me say that again. The penalty good people pay for not being involved in politics is being governed by people worse than themselves. So you have to engage. You have to be involved even in this dirty business of politics. And you have to for your own safety's sake. And I have no doubt you will because you must. Thank you for having me. God bless you all and may God protect our troops.